Well, um, good morning, everyone. Uh, it, it is really nice to be with you again this morning. Um, I, I thought I would share with you this morning a topic uh, that's maybe a, a little bit more technical than what you would expect uh, on a, a Sunday morning. Uh, but it's been very useful in, in my own thinking recently and with a a 20-month-old and a six-week-old in the house. There hasn't been an awful lot of time to try out uh, a whole bunch of uh, new things. Uh, so I just thought, you know, I've really been enjoying this. Uh, I've benefited from it a lot in my thinking. Uh, and so uh, I'll share it uh, this morning. And hopefully it's useful to all of you as well. Because it's the first time I'm trying it out, assume that there's some bits that aren't just quite right and you can correct me on them afterwards and help me make uh, any future uh, versions of this uh, better. But basically uh, what happened was the other week uh, in the middle of the night uh, while I was looking after Alexander, uh, I downloaded a new translation of the Bible on Audible. Um, it, it's this one here. And as I was listening uh, through it, a couple of words uh, about prophecy just jumped out at me from uh, the, the narrator who was reading it. So there's this scholar uh, called Scott McKnight, and he's written this translation called the Second Testament. And basically his whole aim in producing this translation is to make the Bible as unfamiliar uh, to us as Western Christians as possible. He says that in his experience, most translations do too good a job at making you feel right at home in the language that's used as an English reader. They're designed to be very easy to read as English readers. And so sometimes we forget as we pick up our ESV or NIV or something like that, that this book was written to a very different people in a very different language in a whole different time. And he's not saying, he's very clear about this, that English translators should make it hard to read. It's not a bad thing that they make it easy to read, but rather he decided that it might be useful for Western Christians to have the opportunity to read the New Testament in English in a form that mimics the Greek uh, as closely as possible. And so as you read through his translation, I'd recommend giving it a go sometime, but the sentence structure is all over the place. It doesn't look like English at all. The word choice for translating is often quite different from what you'd get in uh, one of your uh, normal translations. And so reading it feels very disorientating, especially when you're sleep deprived in the middle of the night. Uh, so you maybe notice things that you didn't before. But I think it's disorientating in a way that has been good for me because it's forced me to really think uh, about what I'm reading, to pay attention to it, and to constantly ask myself, why did he do that? Why did he translate it that way? Why does this come across different from what I'm used to? And all of that was really just to say that while I, I was then listening through the Gospel of Matthew in this translation, God taught me something new about prophecy that I hadn't really noticed before. It was just a few words, a, a choice that he made in the way of translating something. A whole bunch of things clicked for me uh, that have been really exciting to work through uh, over the last few weeks. So what was this revelation that the new uh, translation brought? Well, if you go with me to Matthew 1, uh, I'll read you first a passage from the NIV, and then I'll read uh, the other translation, this one here, uh, to show you what it said. So this is the text in NIV. 
But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now I'll read from the Second Testament. This is the same text again, but immediately you see that it's a little bit strange. Yosef, musing on all these things, look, the Lord's envoy appeared to him in his dream, saying, Yosef, descendant of Dawid, don't be scared to receive Maria as your woman, for the one given life in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will birth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will deliver his people from their sins. This entire event occurred so that what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah would be filled out saying look a virgin will have a child in her womb and will birth a son and they will call his name Emmanuel which means God with us so apart from all the other uh, things that are a bit different about that as you you notice uh, he translates uh, the the phrase that's in the NIV as all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet as this entire event occurred so that what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah would be filled out. And it was these uh, two words, filled out, which taught me what I'm going to share with you this morning. Uh, to begin drawing out what I find so useful about this translation, just let me give you a little bit of a role play. So imagine that you're sitting in the cozy corner of the local coffee shop, and you're with your friend, Jordan. And he's your old uh, college friend. He, uh, you're a Christian, uh, and he is an atheist. And as has happened many times in the past, uh, the topic of faith has come up. So you decide to share that last week your pastor was teaching on the prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion in Isaiah 53, and with the hope of interesting him to ask some more questions. But Jordan is interested in a way that you didn't anticipate. He leans forward with a quizzical look in his eyes and he says, actually, I've been looking some at the topic of prophecy recently and I've been reading the Gospel of Matthew and something's really bothering me about it. How do you reconcile the way that he uses the Old Testament? When I read it, it just sounds like he's picking and choosing these prophecies from the Old Testament to fit this narrative of Jesus. He's just twisting them in and they weren't about Jesus at all. So you look down and begin to play with the rim of your cup and search for the, the right words. And you think to yourself, well, and say, you, you know, that is a, a, a difficult question. I've always been taught that these are the true fulfillments of prophecies that were given a long time ago. Uh, that Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the others might not have known it, but that these prophecies always secretly applied to Jesus. Jordan turns to you and says, but that seems kind of difficult to reconcile, doesn't it? Like take the prophecy that he takes from Hosea, for example, out of Egypt, I called my son. 
But if you look at what it says back in Hosea, it's actually talking about something that happened in the past. It's already been fulfilled. Why would it apply to someone else in the future? So you hesitate and think, well, actually, I haven't looked at that one closely. Maybe it's something about Jesus being the true Israel. Your friend, he's got the... He's got it now. He he knows that you're uncomfortable, and so he plows on. I don't think that works at all, actually. None of this makes any sense. Uh, Just think about Isaiah 7, for example. Matthew uses this quotation about the virgin birth, but in Isaiah's time, it meant a whole different thing, and it was fulfilled back then. How has this got anything to do with Jesus? So you pause, and you say to yourself, or say to him, Actually, I I still do think that these point to Jesus' true identities, but uh, how about we have coffee next week, and I'll come back and we'll talk about them again then. So off you go talking about football or something like that afterwards, but easier. So in this scenario, uh, as we meet our friend who uh, is trying, you're trying to evangelize him and use prophecy that you fulfill prophecies as a way of of getting through, of convincing him about the Lord Jesus' true identity. But this friend has come prepared. He's heard this argument maybe on the internet somewhere, maybe on a, a YouTube video about how Jesus doesn't fulfill prophecies and how the New Testament just cherry picks uh, these Old Testament things uh, as illegitimate. So he's come and you don't have an answer to this. So what do you do? Is he right? Are these other people who say this right? Or even as you as a Christian have been reading through a text like this in the past, like the Gospel of Matthew, and I've come across one of these texts and thought to yourself, I mean, I'm sure Matthew's right that he's quoting this, but I'm not really sure how these two things link up. What do you do? Well, I think what I'm going to share with you this morning, at least for me, has been very helpful in getting past objections like this and helping to understand a little bit more what it is that Matthew is actually doing, what he thinks he's doing himself, why he is choosing texts like this. So I'll begin uh, by describing the problem of how we get into this sort of uh, cul-de-sac that doesn't really take us anywhere. And I think the problem is this. We start with a view of prophecy that is often informed by specific predictions. So we think a prophecy is next Wednesday it's going to rain and then next Wednesday comes and the prophecy is fulfilled when it rains next Wednesday. If it rained three weeks later on a Wednesday, you wouldn't say that that was the prophecy being fulfilled. It had already been fulfilled in that other Wednesday. Or we think uh, that we go to the Old Testament looking for something very specific, like on the 3rd of April, AD 33, Jesus will be crucified. However, when you look at the bulk of the Bible, which is made up of books that are prophetic books, actually biblical prophecy hardly ever is those predictive things. It doesn't always uh, take this form of prediction. Of course, there are predictions, but even when the predictions are there, the main purpose of these prophetic books is very rarely to give something like next Wednesday it's going to rain. In the Bible, prophecy is much more about someone who has been called by God coming and announcing to the people what God thinks of the way that they are living at the moment. It analyzes the state of the current world system and then predicts within these prophecies what's going to happen if they continue on this path. 
Also, sometimes it predicts what's going to happen if they chose a different path. And so prophecy is marked by details of God's intentions for the future, in which he tells his people through his called uh, prophet, what will happen if they continue to choose the path they are already on. And so although the prophecy may contain a specific short-term prediction intended for its primary audience to give validation that this prophet is a true prophet and not just making things up, the fulfillment of that sort of next Wednesday part of it is not the main part of the revelation. Those parts are just a proof for the rest of what is being said so that these people can see what will happen to them if they continue to rebel against God or if they choose to follow and rep- or to repent and to follow what God tells them to do. So that's sort of like the theory. It's, it's a little bit abstract at this point. So let's move forward and apply this more specifically to Matthew's gospel and the examples that our friend brought up earlier on in that role play. So when you read through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, you'll notice this little phrase coming up again and again. He claims that certain events in Jesus' life were the fulfillment of past prophecies. And yet, as I've already said, after inspection, some of these cited prophecies seem unrelated or irrelevant. And others of them you can look at and you're like, well, that's already been fulfilled in the past. So how has this got anything to do with now? And so, as I've already said, many have claimed that Matthew is twisting the facts to support his claims, shoehorning in biblical passages to try and increase Jesus' reliability for the Jews that he's writing. And all the while, he's hoping nobody will notice what he's done. Others then have claimed that actually what was going on all along was that Matthew discovered the real meaning of these texts. And back then, they didn't actually mean what people thought they did. Instead, they pointed to this specific thing that happened to Jesus instead. But I think both of those approaches have weaknesses, which can be hopefully uh, set straight by adopting this approach that Scott McKnight takes. You see, This translation uh, that he takes of filling up prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy as filling up the prophecy, is based on a direct translation of this word picture that we find in the Greek. So the word picture is of a cup that's full already. So it's not full, it starts to be full, a little bit more full, and now it has got water in it and it is full. But then what he is saying in this word picture and what Matthew is picking up on is that this Greek actually means that kind of full. So the fourth one is full, you would say. That's if you ask someone to give me a full cup of water, that's what you would expect them to give you. If my sister asked me to give her a cup of water, that's the one that I would give her. Full to the very brim and hardly able to drink or hold at all. But that's what this word picture is picking up on here. It's being filled up even more, right up to the very top. And then when we pick up on this word picture, it becomes possible, I think, to understand what Matthew is communicating about Jesus in a more helpful light. Jesus uh, is seen by Matthew as filling up prophecies which God gave in the Old Testament. Yes, most of them already had a historical filling up, 
when they were fulfilled. It's kind of like the fourth cup there. But then when Jesus comes along, Matthew looks at those prophecies and looks at Jesus and says, isn't this remarkable? Now this prophecy has been filled up even more, right to the very brim. It's been completed this time. And so by presenting the filling up of these prophecies, Matthew shows that Jesus' actions provide new insights about God about the way that the world is, about what happens if people continue on the trajectory that they're on now. We see that Matthew presents Jesus as God's ultimate revelation and as clarifying everything that God said before about himself. So let's just take a couple of examples from Matthew to see how this applies. So we've already read uh, the passage in Matthew 1, uh, and this is verses 22 to 23, where uh, it says, all this, in the NIV says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, uh, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What has gone on here, and how does this insight help us out? Well, here Matthew has identified a passage from Isaiah 7, 14, which Jesus has, in Matthew's eyes, filled out. But why has Matthew selected this passage? How does it have anything to do with Jesus? Well, let's look at the two options. Option one would be the predictive view that I sort of mentioned before. In a strictly predictive view, you might expect a straightforward relationship between Isaiah's prophecy and the events of Jesus' birth. And that's what our friend in the coffee shop was saying that we should expect. You could argue that Isaiah was directly and specifically predicting the virgin birth of Jesus hundreds of years before it happened, and that's all that he was predicting. That prophecy was always about Jesus' birth. However, as our friend pointed out in the scenario that I gave, actually this prophecy had referred to something before. It was given in a different situation to a specific person at a specific time for another reason. And so what do we do? Well, if we then use this filling out approach, I think what we would do would be to return to the original context of Isaiah 7:14 and ask, what did this mean at the beginning? In Isaiah's time, the prophecy is presented as a sign for King Ahaz. He's a rebellious king. God has made a promise to him that he will give him protection and a sign in the presence of political turmoil. And Ahaz says that he doesn't want it. He rejects the sign. He goes against God's will for him and he walks away. And yet in God's faithfulness, as a way of showing the kind of God he is, God decides to give King Ahaz a sign anyway. There will be a child born to an Alma, a young woman or a virgin. And it's not entirely clear in the history which child this is, but a very strong candidate, if you look through the commentaries, is that it's Maher Shala Hasbaz. Practiced that a few times beforehand. If you want a good name for your child, that's definitely got to be up there. Try that one out next time. Maher Shala Hasbaz. Isaiah's own child who is born in chapter 8. You see, this word Alma could refer to a young woman. It doesn't, in Hebrew, have to be strictly a virgin. And so in Isaiah's day, this prophecy was given as God's faithfulness in spite of a rebellious nation like King like Ahaz. 
So why would Matthew choose this historical prophecy that has had a historical filling up, like the fourth cup? Why would he choose it as something that Jesus has filled up even more to completion? Well, as we've said, Matthew directly is engaging with the Old Testament and perceives in Jesus' life a deeper, more complete realization of the themes and promises from Isaiah. The miraculous circumstances of Jesus' birth to Mary went much further than that Alma uh, of the Old Testament. Jesus was literally born of a virgin when, she, when uh, Mary gave birth. And then this fills out the meaning of this old prophecy in a unique way. Rather than sort of coming to it with that checklist, next Wednesday approach, this is going to happen, which would cause problems. Matthew is conveying that in Jesus, the deep underlying promise and message of Isaiah's prophecy. And what was that? What was the message of the prophecy? That God is committed to his people, that he is present with them, even when the nation and the kings of the nation have manifested their unfaithfulness to him. Even in that context, this God is going to stay and be faithful to his people. And what better time to fill this prophecy up than when Jesus was born? When the nation continued to show the same kind of pattern as King Ahaz had, rebelling against God, not wanting to follow his way. And yet into this, a sign, a virgin conceives and give birth to a son who is God with us, filling up much more clearly what God's intention and heart was always like. So just in case uh, you think that I entirely made this up, uh, as some of you may have uh, be thinking in the back of your mind, uh, I went actually looking to see whether there were any other Christians who had come to a, a, the same conclusion in the past. And I found uh, this guy uh, back in 1851 called Albert Barnes, who is a, um, he was a th theologian in the USA. And he says this, it cannot be proved indeed that Matthew means to affirm that this was the primary and original meaning of the prophecy or that the prophet had a direct and exclusive reference to the Messiah. But it proves that in his apprehension, the words had a fullness of meaning and adaptness to the actual circumstances of the birth of the Messiah, which would accurately and appropriately express that event. The prophecy was not completely fulfilled, filled up, fully and adequately met until applied to the Messiah. That's what I'm kind of saying, trying to say, and he's saying much better. That event was so remarkable. The birth of Jesus was so strictly of a virgin and his nature so exalted that it might be said to be a complete and entire fulfillment of it. The language of Isaiah indeed was applicable to the event referred to immediately in the time of Ahaz and expressed that, that with clearness but it more appropriately and fully expressed the event referred to by Matthew and thus shows that the prophet designedly made use of language which would be appropriate to a future and more glorious event. And so we see then that with this approach uh, that Matthew takes of understanding the fulfilling of a prophecy as filling up the meaning of a previous prophecy with new and even more complete meaning, we're welcomed, all of us, to come and to look at the Lord Jesus 
and to see him in the same light that he actually refers to himself as. So he says this later on in Matthew. Don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to demolish them, but I came to fill them out, to give them much fuller meaning, to explain what they meant from God's perspective before. And so when we approach the Old Testament, we're invited, as Matthew did, to view Jesus' life and to ask ourselves in ways, in what ways does his life, in what ways does his action, in what ways does he, what he do help us to understand what God has already told us about himself in the past? In what ways do we get to know God more fully as a result of the the virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son who is God with us. So this is one example. I'll just give you another example, which I'll go through a little bit uh, more quickly. Uh, first, or we'll go to Matthew chapter 2, and uh, we'll read a few verses there again in the NIV first. So uh, this time it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. This was said through the prophet Jeremiah. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And then we get this other translation from Scott McKnight. Then Herodes, if you're wondering why it's strange the way that he, he says, uh, oh, did I not put that in there? Oh, it's back to front, is it? Oh, well, that's the one there. So Herodes, uh, so it's, it's strange like that because he's transliterating Greek instead of uh, Herod is like transliteration of Latin. That's just a little bit of a tidbit. So uh, seeing that he had been mocked by the diviners was enraged deeply and commissioning, he did away with all the children in Bethlehem and all in its regions from two years and younger, consistent with the time he had figured out from the diviners. Then what was said through the prophet Yeremas was filled out. A voice in Ramah was heard, wailing and deep mourning, Rachel wailing for her children. She did not want to be consoled because they are not. So Matthew here cites Jeremiah 31 verse 15 as a passage that he sees filled out by Jesus' actions. We'll ask again the question, why has he selected this passage? And first, we'll look at the weakness of the predictive view. In a strictly predictive framework, you might assume that Jeremiah was thinking about nothing else than this future prophecy in which Herod would massacre infants under the age of two. This view would hold that Jeremiah's words were a clear and direct prediction of this future, far future tragic event at the beginning of Jesus' life, even if there was a, a natural historical referent, one in which you could say Rachel's actual children were enduring persecution in the exile. But of course, as we noticed from our discussion with our friend in the coffee shop, that's a little bit difficult to argue since that would take away from the original meaning of the text from Jeremiah. So what do we do? Well, we return again to the filling out view, which helps us to understand what Matthew's doing here. 
If we go back then and ask the original text in Jeremiah and see what it's saying in its contextual understanding, we understand that the prophecy came during the Babylonian exile and relates to the mourning of Israelites who are being persecuted during that time. Rachel, who is the matriarch of Israel, is depicted as mourning the loss of her descendants then. But the context in Jeremiah is really important because it's about the trauma of the exile, not about Herod's actions later. And yet there is a lot of similarity between what's going on in these two things. It's designed back then as a potent message from God to his people that he's not going to abandon them in the fate that they're currently in. And as you read on from the prophecy that uh, Matthew specifically uh, refers to, the very next verses and later on in that chapter, we discover that God is promising that he is a God who will remember them in their weeping. A God who knows that things are bad now, but is going to do something to uh, create a new covenant with them that will make things better, different. And so we realize that when Matthew cites this verse from your, uh, Jeremiah, he has been looking at Jesus' life and he has recognized that what has happened in Jesus' life fills out and resonates so deeply with this deep sorrow of the Israelites in the past, of the Bethlehem mother, mothers at that time. It's again, it's not about reading the, the, the passage in the sort of next Wednesday sense, but about a deep filling out of something that God was teaching his people about himself back then. Just as Rachel is depicted as mourning for her lost descendants, so too these mothers in Bethlehem mourn their lost children. But just as immediately after this morning comes the promise of God's faithfulness and the new promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, now the very means, the filling up, the completeness by which God is going to be faithful to his people and going to establish the new covenant is filled out by what Jesus does or what happens to Jesus in his youth. For Matthew, the tragedy in Bethlehem echoes Israel's historical suffering, showing that Jesus' early life is deeply entwined with this ongoing narrative of God's faithfulness to Israel. He arrived on earth experiencing the same experiences as God's people in the past did. And in so doing, he came to do what Matthew says he does, to save them from their sins. And so by invoking uh, Jeremiah, Matthew isn't saying that Jeremiah predicted the exact events uh, of the massacre in Jesus' day. Instead, by referencing this passage, he's suggesting that the grief and the sorrow experienced during Jesus' early days are, are consistent with the heartbreaks in Israel's history, reinforcing which is really important for Matthew, Jesus' identity as part of this story, as not divorced from Israel's story, but as a continuation and completion of it, as the one who, for these people and for us who have come to recognize their Messiah as our Messiah and Savior and Lord, as the one who reveals God's character, the one who has made salvation possible, and has done so by filling up the meaning of all what the Old Testament prophecies uh, predicted right to the very brim. 
And so since we've had a chance to look at a little bit of unraveling Matthew's understanding of prophecy, we see that God, through all of the years of history, has invited his people to reflect on his revelation about himself, to explore the profound and patient way in which God has revealed his purposes for his people in the world. And instead of sort of expecting us to come and approach the scriptures as uh, just looking for checklists or, or something like that, we're invited to come and to live within these dynamic narratives, which are rich with interconnected themes woven across the whole of scripture, filled up, fulfilled, and then when Jesus came, filled up to the very brim, completed in him. And all of this we can see as having been done by our sovereign and successful God who has plans that go well beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Matthew's filling out methodology offers us a lens to view prophecies not as isolated predictions, but as expansive themes that find deeper and more complete realization as history has unfolded, eventually being fully filled up in the revelation and arrival of God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just stop with his incarnation because this same word that we've been looking at this morning, fulfilled, filled up, is used to speak of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter four and verse 10, where it says this, speaking about Jesus, the one who descended into our world is the same one who has ascended higher than all the heavens so that now he might fill up the entire universe with himself. Let's go out then as a people who follow this Lord Jesus as the one who completes and reveals and shows God to us with this understanding through him of what our God is like, of what he intends to do for us and what he has offered us through his salvation. And with the prayer that comes right at the very end of uh, the, the, the scriptural narrative that we get in John, even so come, Lord Jesus. We desire to see you fill the whole earth over which you now reign so that what is done in heaven will be done on earth among us as well. Will I pray? Father, as we uh, come into your presence, we just want to give thanks for the opportunity that we've had, the gift that your son gives to us each week as he told us to come uh, and to remember him, to take this bread, take this wine, and to remember that it is the cup of the new covenant uh, which he has established. And we go to these Old Testament passages and we we see that there were initial fillings up and ways that they were uh, referred to. And yet there was this one that stood out later on in Jeremiah as the, the establishment of the new covenant that no one could ever figure out what it would look like to be filled up. And then your son came and he gave us this cup and he went to the cross and he gave his blood for us and he filled up our understanding of what it would take for you to come to us and make a one-way promise that if we trusted in you, that we could be saved forever. We are so thankful for everything that he has done for us. Uh, we look forward to seeing him reigning over the whole earth 
There's so much pain, uh, so much dissonance, so much loss around the world today because people do not follow your son. They do not accept him as your, their king and he does not reign in peace and prosperity and love and kindness and fairness. And so when we see his character, we just want to pray like John did. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We long to see you, Lord Jesus, reigning all over our earth. We look forward to the day when we are with you and reigning alongside you as a result of what you have offered to us through salvation. So we just pray these things and look forward to the different ways that your spirit will lead us in the weeks ahead as we meditate on on your son uh, and we look forward to the ways that uh, and just ask that he would apply uh, these things so that we could be more like him uh, as we go out into a world that doesn't know him very well at all we pray these things in the name of lord jesus amen